Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm is back on the program to lay out the economic factors driving the markets and what sectors to watch for in the global markets. Firstly, Denise tackles the ongoing recession narrative. For quite some time, her stance has been that the market has already priced in a recession. Now she says we are in a soft landing, even a no landing recession, based on historical data. She goes on to say that the consumer doesn't gradually walk into a recession, there has to be a shock to the system. And she believes we felt that shock in 2022 with the oil situation and rate hikes. Now in 2023, we have stimulus from oil and rates are going higher, but at a slower lift. And she says the factor that nobody is looking at is that inflation is already coming down and that didn't happen in past recessions. Denise believes the narrative for 2023 will be the stimulus around disinflation. Denise also notes the top three sectors to keep an eye on are consumer discretionary, metals and mining, and industrials. Bottom sectors, in her mind, are real estate and staples. This podcast was recorded on February 15th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Did we overestimate this this recession? I mean, what is going on here? Could be. Now, I have to say, you know, I have taken the tact both, you know, internally at Fidelity and externally with you all over the past year saying a lot has been discounted and even you know, something the worst case, like a recession, may already be discounted. Remember the sort of infamous payroll chart that's more predictive what stocks have already done is more predictive of what stocks will do. Even in the case of a payroll decline, you can actually have a positive market. So what I thought my approach would be uh, was that, look, even if you have a recession in 2023, we may have already discounted it. I have to say, nobody was really buying that from me. So I'll, I'll say I'm going to shift and say, I think we're solidly in the soft landing slash no landing camp based on what we're seeing in the data. And the way I look at history is, I think, a little different than others where we don't, I, I've seen a lot of strategists write notes of the, the slow walk into a recession. The way I look at history, you don't really just slowly walk into a recession and the U.S. consumer doesn't just sort of collapse on itself. Usually it's a shock that tips us into recession. The shocks that we have seen were last year, right? The shock that we saw from oil, the shock that we saw from rates. You roll forward into 2023, what do we really have? We have stimulus from oil, not a shock, it's the opposite. Rates are still going up, but at a much, much less lower clip. And almost importantly, and I think that the factor that everybody is not really focusing on, inflation is already coming down. This is stimulus that we have not seen from you know outside a recession we didn't see this in the 70s and 80s and we haven't generated enough inflation over the last 25 years 
to have this act as a stimulus. So in some ways, I think that the you know, narrative around 2023 is going to be the stimulus related to disinflation. So what is the Fed actually sitting with, do you think, at this point? Yeah, I think that the Fed tried to rush to get higher rates on a more sustainable level, you know, in some ways to quell inflation, for sure. But if you look at what just happened in the UK last year, what you'd find is we have two things that can, two levers to pull in case the economy does get into trouble, into a recession, and it's monetary and fiscal. Fiscal is probably not attainable on a go-forward basis, right? We saw that from the UK. Obviously, all of the developed countries are now levered. So really, you are left with monetary policy. And you can only cut rates if you have rates high enough to cut. So from that perspective, I actually see this as a, a much better setup for the US than most investors do because we have rates high enough to cut. And so the risk reward for me is pretty positive. If inflation turns out to be more benign than they thought, they can actually cut. We're seeing that play out in some of the data. And if we do devolve into a recession, now the Fed can actually act. So we have bullets in the gun to actually help. So it's so interesting. What does that do? Of course, these are Canadian investors that you're with here today. We're all so happy that um, you can tell us how we should be doing things. But what does that mean for the U.S. dollar? Like if we're investing in U.S. equities, for instance, um, what's the dollar story? Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because obviously the dollar was dominant as the Fed was raising rates. Um, and that in some ways exported inflation. What's interesting has been the devaluation and how quick it's been. So right. as soon as the Fed, you know, let's call it hit pause, maybe not pause, pause is not the right word, but decelerated the rate of rate increases from 75 to 50 to 25, all of a sudden the do- dollar, you know, essentially depreciated by, I think, close to 10% from a peak to trough situation. That seems to me, to me, to be an overreaction. Look, rates are one factor driving currency, but relative growth is another. And I think that the U.S. is still dominant in terms of that relative growth globally. I think that this is good for the globe. I mean, what is bad for the globe is for the U.S. to be in recession. What is good for the globe is to have the U.S. avoid recession. But when I think about geographic narratives, I mean, in some ways, we've already seen some sharp performance in emerging markets, certainly. And I think emerging markets is an area that does have valuation support. But when I look at IFA, when I look at that area, which everybody's saying is much, much cheaper uh, than the U.S., and and maybe they have raised rates less, so maybe there's an opportunity there with the theme of value. I actually think that IFA is a value trap. So secularly, cycle to cycle, and I'm actually showing these charts internally later today in my presentation, secularly cycle to cycle, IFA has been cheaper and cheaper relative to the U.S. for good reason, because operating margins and returns and earnings have been worse and worse every cycle. So the question is, do you think it's different this time? And I would say no, because the Europe actually has to raise rates more, the U.S. has already done that, and is in a potential worse situation from a relative growth perspective in 2023. So I think that the risk reward is still more positive for the U.S. than a lot of other developed areas. I think many, again, sometimes this is recessionary, sometimes it's not recessionary, but what you can use is the diffusion index of manufacturing to be predictive. So we've seen it's, you know, I think it's almost 41. What you actually see, you know, going forward is sometimes it does get worse. But if you are just willing to look over the next six months, you usually have a rebound. 
And I think that this is the off cycle nature of what we're seeing this cycle, which is manufacturing is kind of in a recession and consumer has actually been more or less fine, buffeted by you know, what we had you know, in savings and access to credit because banks have been fine. So it's a manufacturing recession. So in six months, as much as people wanna say, well, where is the rebound gonna come from? It might actually come from the manufacturing industry. And what has that meant historically? It has meant that it's usually a buying opportunity for stocks. So when you see bottom decile new orders, you think, oh my gosh, this is bad and could potentially get worse. But if you're just willing to look with a one-year time horizon, let's just say it's all of 2023, what do you usually see? 90% odds of a stock market advance, double-digit returns, 23%, well above our baseline averages of 8% historically. So this is usually a buying opportunity, particularly led by cyclical sectors like consumer discretionary and like financials. Amazing. Is it possible we've already seen that for the year? I mean, I know that not everything sort of begins and ends at the beginning and the end of a year, but it's been quite a January. Yes, it has been quite a January. And I think if you look at what happened in January, it is a ball in motion that is likely to stay in motion. So let's think about it from a factor perspective instead of from a sector perspective. The most volatile stocks or high beta stocks beat the safest or lowest volatility stocks by about 15 percentage points. 15, wow. 1.5. Happens 3% of the time historically, right? Pretty rare. So you say, okay, just let's take that, you know, all of these quartiles and say, when high volatile stocks beat low volatile stocks, what tends to happen in the future? And it's actually a monotonic relationship. The worse they do relative to low vol, the worse they tend to do. The better they do relative to low vol, the better that they do over the course of the next year. And in fact, it's such a rate at the top decile, and you know, obviously we're the top 3%, but we, even within that top decile, you say, after you've seen that performance, what happens over the next 12 months? So I'm going one month into 2024 with this, and you'd say it actually outperforms by another 30%. So that's like almost the mathematical definition of what technicians call thrust, is that once you see a signal like this, it is more likely to continue. Now, look, I will tell you that there was a one, only one exception to that rule, and that has been 2001. So if you are a believer that stocks are overvalued and it's like the technology bubble, I will tell you then maybe this pattern wouldn't hold. I am not a believer in that. I don't think that stocks are overvalued. I don't think that the bubble analogy holds, even in technology stocks. So I think that the risk reward, again, becomes positive for those high beta, high vol sectors. And look, I'd be careful with any kind of defensive or low vol positioning, because I think that the risk reward is much more negative than most investors believe. And I actually think that your starting point on relative valuation is already pricing in some downside. That's why you might not get a lot of good news, but just the lack of bad news and the valuation differential could coil the spring for 2023 to be a really big risk on year. It's so interesting because you would think, and I, I mean, obviously I have no idea, but it, you would think there's a lot of people feeling more comfortable with a low, val, low vol strategy right now, generally speaking. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know either. Uh, I find it ironic that the data suggests, again, that, you know, you see it in the defensive sectors. Okay, what do we usually have? You know, even if a recession starts, you'd say, well, usually defensive sectors outperform going into recession by about 10 percentage points. 
over the course of the year following a recession, and let's just say recessions last nine to 12 months, that they tend to outperform another five to 10%. Well, defensive sectors have already outperformed all of that, 25 to 29%, depending on which defensive sector you're looking at. So that's sort of the problem. I think to your point in the beginning, have we sort of overcalled the recession narrative? And I think unwinding that is going to be much more significant. It's not just the lack of recession, it's that you already discounted one that I think is the coiled spring. And I'm open-minded. I mean, this could be something, you know, from a much higher level that we do see a substantial correction from. The fact that the yield curve is inverted, I think in some ways people want to expect a recession this year, but really if there's a pattern to recognize, it's usually like one to two or even maybe three years in the future. I mean, it was four in the case of 1966, but nobody wants to talk about 1966. But anyway, there's a deep lag there. So that's why I think that you could really have this setup of 2023 being a much better year than you think. And then when you think that you're out of the woods, you could certainly have a deeper correction uh, as inflation perhaps reaccelerates. I mean, again, I'm open-minded. We'll see how the data turns out. Why doesn't anyone want to talk about 1966? Because it's the one yield curve example that doesn't fit the narrative, right? Because you had the yield curve invert, like on all levels and in size in 1966, and you didn't have the recession until 1970. So I guess you could say that, well, it was off in terms of time, like four years is a long time for an wild. investor. For an investor. Yeah. Um, so right. through January, we did see lots of short covering that was well telegraphed and discussed and, and people taking a look at that. Um, has there been, I mean, what have you noticed on sort of a retrenching of a, of a more bearish scenario? It, it, it seems seems there's a lot of everything. So I'm kind of curious what you're hearing and what you see as just noise. Yeah, I will say people seem to be dug in, right? So the people right. who thought that, look, there's a lot of bad news, there will be a recession and we haven't seen the worst of it yet and stocks won't bottom until the worst of it. The, the, the thing to do in that situation is the 20% advance in the NASDAQ we've seen, I don't think we got quite to that on the S&P, is to say, I'm going to take some beta off the table. So the people that hold that view, I think, are, are fairly cemented into that view. Um, and even, the, I would say, that the optimists want to buy things that they have owned, which is interesting. So you can't really get people to move, and it's partly because the data has been fairly muddy. So I don't, I think, you know, I, I said in one note a long time ago that if you wait for the data to be clear, you've missed the move. And part of it is because there's all of these crazy discounting anomalies in the market that you can actually measure when you use historical data that I try and do. But that's the irony is that people are waiting for something like a retail sales report or a non-farm payroll report to give them clarity. And what you're really saying is each report just muddies the water even more, especially because they're having such a hard time with seasonally adjusting data that I think that you're going to have to like lump a bunch of months together to actually see a trend. So, so the discussion of of perhaps not buying low vol and not sort of embracing that that mindset does that automatically say buy vol or or is there something else in between there? Not always. I mean, it does. I think in this case. So to me, I think low vol has a starting point problem, meaning that the stocks are expensive, not as expensive as they've ever been, but they're certainly not cheap. And low vol has been a great factor to be exposed to. And that's sort of why it just crept up into this, what I would call overvalued territory. 
which creates a negative risk reward. So it diminishes your odds of outperformance by buying low vol as a factor from let's call it in the 70s, because everybody knows it's a pretty good factor to be exposed to, to something in the 40s. Now, 40 is not zero, but I think it changes your risk reward. The other two things that I think are the catalysts relative, again, just that, let's just call it, we over discounted a recession is number one. But two, I think we have two really strong catalysts. And one is the second derivative arguments for both inflation and the Fed. And when you look at that historically, those are both very correlated to low vol underperforming. So yes, I mean, that is the driver between low vol and high vol. And what you see is that disinflationary trend that you can only get when inflation is already elevated and the Fed's response to that, right, the 75 to 50 to 25, that deceleration in rate hikes are the two critical drivers that usually lead to low vol underperformance and risky asset performance. So, and I, again, I think that the patterns to recognize are that it is different this time. And what is different that is inflation is already decelerating without a recession. And inflation can only decelerate if it's at top quartile levels. So we have not really seen this playbook for essential, well, maybe ever, like in the sense of we have a big disinflationary impulse without a recession right now. And that has not been true in the 70s or 80s. And we didn't have a big disinflationary impulse in the 90s or the aughts because we didn't have high enough inflation. So in some ways, that is the very important dynamic of 2023, 24, 25. So when you look back in history, the pattern to recognize is just how significant that has been. It's been significant. Schumer? Yeah. I mean, when you real income growth, and it's been significant for profit margins. So two things. I mean, one, there was sort of this this discussion of, I think it was Australia, but you know, inflation essentially came back, and then they had to relook at it. The central banks. So there was sort of that question of whether it's still lingering, still could come back. That to you, but also the discussion that everyone was trying to figure out when the pivot would be. The going from from a percent or from 75 to 50 to 25. I mean, that that was the pivot. I mean, that that's exactly what everyone was waiting for. Um, and that was the thought that things would take off from there. So in some cases, are you surprised that we're surprised? <laughs> I guess. A little bit, yes, because the the data on the ground, or at least that you know, I look at, it was never really correlated to need a pivot. Right. And it's never correlated to needing the Fed to cut. Right. We've talked about all of these and it's all on my LinkedIn feed. If anybody wants to see the charts, it, it doesn't mean it can't be true, but it hasn't been true enough in history that you'd say, OK, I want to bet on this. Right. So those things have really never been true. What has been critical in history is that the pace of advance of interest rate rises could not be sustained at 75 a clip. That had to change. And that's second derivative. In some ways, it's almost a third derivative. That is what we saw as the driver for the market in 80, 80, 82, and 75. Those things were pretty correlated. I mean, we only have like three instances. But if you wanted to bet on something, that would be the thing to bet on. And it is that second derivative change. And I've often said, look, even the terminal rate that we're saying, okay, strong payroll numbers, are they going to give us a five? At this point, I don't think it matters to the equity market. Now, look, if you're an asset allocator, it's going to matter to tips. It's going to matter to which part of the curve you're going to own. But I'm not sure that it matters statistically to the equity market, even the terminal rate. We went essentially from three and a half to now we're a little bit over five, I think, from a terminal rate perspective. The U.S. market is up. We seem to what be does that tell you? It tells you it's not about the terminal rate because you can grow into higher rates as income advances. 
right? So it's really, it's the pace of advance that becomes the shock. Top three and bottom three sectors from your perspective. Yes, consumer discretionary, financials and materials in the top three, and I'll add a fourth if you need me to, which is mid-cap technology. Yes, I think tech is not going to be leadership from a cap-weighted perspective, but I think that there's something to own down the cap spectrum. And that sort of goes with the vol as well. So if you want vol from an industry perspective, I do think you could get there within consumer discretionary and financials, and certainly metals and mining has a lot of vol with it, but some of the signature vol stocks, semiconductors. If you're really sort of into embracing risk, that would be the industry to embrace it. And on the bottom three, I would say consumer staples, utilities, and I'm going to add real estate. In 2023, what is more important, market to markets, corporate earnings or the direction of interest rates? Earnings. So I'm going to go with earnings. That said, I think I'm going to say a bunch of stuff about earnings. I think it's less important than we might think in the sense of if I go back in history and I say, okay, earnings are going to decline and I know they're going to decline. I'm going to be right in a year, right? Let's just say they decline over the course of the next year. What are my odds that stock market actually advances? 65%, average return of 7%. So stocks can discount earnings in advance. And this is part of my struggle. Like, yes, the news is going to be bad. And I look, I I get that investors say it's all about earnings. It, It is in the sense that they can't be a wipeout. That is definitely true, that we have not discounted something like the financial crisis. But in some ways, we can discount a lot in advance. But I'll say twofold. I do think that we have a positive catalyst in corporate earnings, and this is in margin. So, and again, this is a little bit of a preview because I'm giving the presentation internally later today, but it's all on the data that we're saying. I know you're seeing this like live. This, This is like a practice run. So what you see is margins have already, already contracted in the U.S. This is not as true as overseas which is not why I'm a little bit more bullish on the U.S. So we've seen a bottom quartile contraction. Yes, it could go further. Yes, this is nothing like we saw in the financial crisis or in 2001. So if you think that that's going to happen, then this is not the pattern to recognize. But after that, what you usually have is an opportunity overall in stocks and sometimes for margins to bounce back. So already with all of these things, yes, margins are going to get worse. Yes, we know that because they've already been a little bad. But we now have stimulus for margins. Inflation is now decelerating, right? So the six months annualized run rate of the CPI has come down precipitously. And X shelter, which we know is deeply lagged relative to rents, is at zero. Right. So this is not about will inflation this decelerate. It's all about that right now. Everyone's talking about just the real estate piece of it. But right. if you strip that out, that's very interesting. It is because the Fed knows that it's a deeply lagged indicator. And most economists know that there's, you know, let's call it a one to two year lag between rents and actual housing prices, the way the Fed calculated it. And I think the Fed had a white paper come out recently and said, yeah, we know it's not exactly the right way to calculate it because it's deeply lagged and we might change the calculation. So if you just say, let's just take that part out, everything else has decelerated rapidly and is at a run rate of zero. So we've already seen the stimulus to corporate profit margins. So if I look at disinflationary trends and I say, okay, what happens to profit margins? It's a boost. And we haven't seen anything like this in let's call it 25 years or maybe if ever, I have to go back and sort of dust off the data. But so my point on earnings is be careful because you can discount a lot of bad news in advance. And back to the, I guess, you know, again, I've said that many times. And if you don't believe me on that, then I'm going to be in the soft landing slash no landing camp and earnings are going to be better than expected. Amazing. So just uh, a request for a recap on the top three. 
Did I say it too fast? All right. I don't know. Consumer discretionary, financials, and metals and mining. And I will detail a little bit more on them. So I think that they check my boxes in three significant ways. One, they're all at relative valuation support. So what that means is that they are in some sort of bottom quartile or bottom tercile or bottom decile of the history that I have going back to 1962. And when they have been in that bottom decile or whatever of history, they have strong odds of outperformance. My hurdle is above 70%. Above, you know, I can't guarantee you 100% odds. You rarely get that, but that's a good risk reward. So valuation support with high probable outcome. Two is that these sectors discount bad news in advance, meaning that consumer discretionary has a track record of going up before the earnings turn. Consumer discretionary does, financials does, and metals and mining stocks do. Energy does not, right? Energy has no track record. So if you want to say it's different this time, and I'm going to bet on energy because they're cheap too, that's fine. But I wouldn't do that because I don't see it in the, in the historical data. The third thing that they all have is a catalyst. And the catalyst for consumer discretionary is real income growth. We're seeing it in the surveys. We're seeing it play out in the inflection in the data. So if I look at real income growth, it's been deeply negative for the last two years. It's the only recession, it's the only event that we have had that real income growth to contract this much without a recession, which was the opposite of the pandemic. What we saw during the pandemic was it was the only recession that wasn't coupled with negative real income growth. Right, so maybe we just shifted the recession from the year before to the year after in terms of what the stock market did. And real income growth, if that's actually the catalyst, that, that could be very significant for specifically consumer discretionary. But for financials, credit spreads are still continuing to contract, again, with the potential soft landing, no landing. And the metals and mining area is geared towards that potential manufacturing recovery that we saw in NAPM new orders being this low is the only way you actually get a rebound. So those are my three favorites in the sense of they've got valuation support, they have a good track record of discounting bad news in advance, which means that I don't need to bet on news getting any better. And then finally, it looks to me like we have a catalyst this year. The suggestion of no landing, taking a look at, at your, what your research says. So in if there is this scenario, if, stock, if stocks and home prices return to highs, for instance, won't inflation just return? No. So I don't think so, because inflation, again, if you're me, when I look at the historical data, inflation is much, 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 much harder to get than I think we think. So asset inflation is not goods inflation. We know this, right? I can back test it historically. And the problem is labor market inflation doesn't cause inflation either. There's been really no relationship. I know they like the beverage curve and like all of those curves. Yeah. And I get it. If I was at the Fed, maybe I would say the same thing. But I look at the data and I just don't see it be very clear historically. So low unemployment rate doesn't always lead to wage inflation. And even if it does, what you see is in the bottom quartile of its historic range, what you have is usually like three to three and a half percent wage inflation, which means that we could decelerate all of our from our five level to get back to what would be considered sticky with our current unemployment rate. So I think that if there was anything I would like to, to bust in terms of myth busting or you know break the analogy, it's that growth always leads to inflation. If growth always led to inflation, the aughts would have been much, much different, right? So we don't really experience that. I know it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction. I just don't see it in the data. So because I don't see it in the data, I, I'm much more skeptical than the average person. I mean, I was an econ major too, but I was also a stats major. So I, I tended to gravitate more to stats and 
you know, in some ways they always have the, well, let's imagine we have a hammer. So, you know, that's not me. I, I mean, that's revolutionary though. It is actually <laughs> to think that, because that that's implicit in that sort of question of Australia, I think it was Australia, where, you know, inflation came back suddenly. And so they had to take another crack at what they were doing with interest rates. So that, that, that's a lingering question. And you don't see that necessarily. Being we don't see it yet. I mean, we may see it, right? And in some ways, we the Uber there's an Uber bad case for that, and then there's kind of a good case for that that I actually used as an analog during the pandemic. So the Uber bad case would be the recession in 1970, and the Fed did the stop-start inflation, and then they cut rates, and then inflation came raging back, and then essentially we had the Uber, you know, very big recession in 1974, along with the oil embargo and along with a lot of other things. But, uh, you know, essentially they were correlated. So that's like the bad news, right? That's the scary part if the Fed sort of took its eye off the ball. The, the bullish trajectory would be after Volcker came in and said, we're going to crush inflation. There was a scare. I think, you know, I might be getting my dates a little bit off. I want to say 83, 83, 84, where the bond vigilantes came back out and they were saying, like, this is it. This is it. The Fed's going to come back for us. And what you saw was that actually happened. We did have a peak to trough contraction. I think it was around 15 to 20%, but it was off a different level. So the bond vigilantes ended up being right, but their timing was so wrong that had they gotten that you know, wrong at the time, they actually would have made more money just holding equities the entirety of the time. So I think that that's the part that I struggle with, which is, you know, yes, we are going to have that scare at some point because inflation is not going to stay at a run rate of zero forever. I mean, it shouldn't. I hope it doesn't because I do not want the deflation risk that we carry after the global financial crisis. So you definitely don't want that. So we're going to see some sort of resurgence and there is going to be a bounce back. The question that I have is I don't know what level that is going to occur from. So I think it could be, or at least the work that I'm presenting is that it's going to be a higher level than now. Denise Chisholm, it is fascinating to speak with you and you always bring us something that we had not even thought of. Thank you for your time. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.